bow our heads in prayer at this sacred moment of our worship service, confessing in utmost humility that we are seeking as a finite man to understand the infinite mind of Christ inscripturated. And so we beg your spirit to instruct us to attract our attention, the holy affections that uh, were enlightened through the gospel of Christ, the same words that were foreign to us without Christ, have now become precious words. Help us to drink deeply at the fountain of living water. Thank you for writing to us about who you are and what you expect of us. We pray that you would convict us and encourage us through the message of Scripture about your amazing grace. We pray this in the name of our Savior, the Lord Jesus. Amen. I invite you to take your copy of God's Word and join me in Titus chapter 2 as we pretty much finish off chapter 2. And I just noted during the offertory in the, in the bulletin, I, I probably wasn't paying attention when I emailed uh, Tricia about the bulletin. The, the sermon is not about the Great Awakening. Uh, I love talking about it. I love thinking about it. But we are going to uh, be looking at a sermon entitled Grace Awakening, this text that is just riveted with grace from the beginning to the end. Titus chapter 2, would you begin reading with following along as I read for us verses 11 and following. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave Himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession, zealous for good deeds. These things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you. As we come to the closing remarks of this section of the letter Paul wrote to Titus, he wrote about what he was to urge and teach. In uh, chapter 1, verse 5, several months ago when we began this book, we saw his mandate as he went to the Isle of Crete. This is why Paul left him there, that he would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. And we've spent the last few weeks together looking at verses 1 through 10 of the second chapter as Titus was to command God's people, the congregation, to live righteously. No matter what group they find themselves in, the older men or younger men, the older women or the younger women, he was to urge them. And so we come to this text at the end of the chapter, which is the heart of the letter, emphasizing God's saving purpose in calling out elders and for the people in the congregation to be exhibiting 
godliness. And he begins to explain the nature of transforming grace, giving a basis for all of Christian conduct. These verses of our English Bibles is just one sentence of the Greek text in providing the theological core of the entire book. It is to give us a doctrinal foundation for all the imperatives. We see command after command. We must look at the source of the command. We were looking last week at what does versus what does not adorn the gospel. And so now, at the end of this chapter, Paul grounds all these instructions, both the previous instructions and the instructions that will end the letter in grace and the saving plan of God. They are the product of the gospel, and we must never lose focus of that. It is important for us as a local congregation to look at imperative after imperative of Holy Scripture given from the lips of God through the pen of His apostles, many commands. But we must not separate the imperatives of the gospel from the indicatives of the gospel. What becomes the source of how we behave? It is our belief. It is the grace of God. And if we were to look at salvation from sin unto righteousness in terms of three all-encompassing realities, in terms of tense... Have, have, have you sat through lessons before in adult Sunday school or maybe uh, an, an adult Bible study where you've been taught the tenses of salvation, past, present, and future? Because that's, in essence, what most of these verses Paul does. He recollects from them in, in the past, God delivering them from the penalty of sin in verse 11, that, that if you are a saint of God, if you have breathed deeply gospel air, you've turned from your sin and embraced Christ as your only hope of salvation, that you're never going to incur the wrath of God as it was satisfied in Christ and applied to your account the moment you believed. And there is not just a past tense to our salvation experience, there is a present reality as well. As the Spirit of God is constantly working in us to will and to do of His own good pleasure, ridding us from the power of remaining sin in our lives. That's verse 12. And then finally, in hope and anticipation, we look forward to that day when we will be rescued from the very presence of sin. That is the future tense of our salvation. Verse 13, when our songs of faith that we sing, save to sin no more, will become reality for all of eternity future. And we look forward to that. Paul rehearses gospel glory and grace for us verse after verse at the core of the book here in these verses, that man can't get to God, so God came to man. And he helps reiterate for us that this grace is not sloppy grace, which goes on a lot of teaching in evangelicalism today, that it is without effort. To know grace is to exert great effort as we work out our salvation, and it doesn't mean antinomianism, that there is no law. 
We are, we are enslaved to the law of Christ now, free to believe and obey. And we must realize that grace is not just about, when we talk about the gospel with people, it's not just about a program or a plan, it's a person that we introduce them to. Let me share an illustration and then I will uh, propose to you where we will go throughout this message this morning. You might remember I spent nine years out in Southern California, the land of fruits and nuts, where it uh, almost never rains. You can, you can most of the time entertain people out in your backyard. You can store stuff out in your backyard. When El Nino rain deluged Southern California one winter, the potential dangers of mudslides became a real nightmare for one family. I'd never experienced a mudslide in my life. I never knew there was a fear of mudslides. There was a family that was still in their home and a wave of mud tore through their house, severing it and sweeping a sleeping baby out into the night. The, the parents began to search throughout the darkness for the child and tromping through the mire that had descended upon the whole neighborhood. They searched they dug, they called for their child throughout the long night, and all to no avail, no results. When morning came, a rescuer himself, covered in mud, came to those fearful parents with a mud-caked bundle in his arms, the baby, filthy but alive. And you know what the mother then did? She clung to her child despite its filth, washed the muck away, and determined to keep the child out of the mud in the future. I don't know if that was figuratively or literally. But that scenario of where I used to live kind of encapsulates for me what Paul is instructing us believers in in the text at hand. It helps us understand the concepts in the passage that are, not a, that, that are so opposed to a, a common thought about the nature of God's grace as it's propounded in our age. Yes, grace we know annuls our works as a, man's of, a means of securing or maintaining God's affection. You cannot work yourself into His favor. The natural human inclination as a result is, is to suppose that if our good works don't determine God's affection, there's no reason to do them anyways in the first place. Why be so concerned about godliness since we are saved by grace? Because, say the Scriptures, when the filth of our sin was sweeping over us and our helplessness to eternal death, our God covered Himself in the muck of this world to rescue us, to em embrace me despite my filth as an enemy of His cause. And now He wants me to remain out of the mud just like that mother such grace should make us so in love with God that we cannot stand whatever in our lives resoils us and offends Him. Biblical grace makes us intolerant of evil in us and around us. The apostle here underscores this truth saying that the grace of God teaches us to say no to the ungodliness and worldly passions. Grace rightly perceived is what compels our holiness that's not natural logic, but it's biblical doctrine. We must confess that. And in the popular mind, those who are full of grace are supposed to say, okay, 
That's all right, fine, never mind, go ahead. But for the apostle, grace means we say no. We avoid that which dishonors him. What kind of grace is this? Paul tells us that it is the power of Christ. His requirements of His redeemed. We read the text, and so let's walk through it as we notice four instructions on grace. Four instructions on grace. If you want to take advantage of the notes section in your bulletins, jot down first of all, grace appeared to us. You might say, well, Pastor Parker, that's uh, patently obvious to the casual observer. We know this. Well, don't move on yet, because that is verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. Underscore that in your mind. That He rescued us from sin. So Paul starts by remaining, uh, reminding them of their undeserved deliverance. And how often, beloved, do we need the reminder of our undeserved deliverance and to drink deeply of that undeserved deliverance in gospel grace? Grace appeared. That's a phrase used 15 times in Paul's letters to describe unmerited divine favor. So we can't move on too quickly. We must stop and let that percolate in our souls to think of how great a salvation that grace has appeared to us. The coming of Christ, His epiphany, was an act of pure grace when He did not have to come and yet came. So Paul pauses us to ponder the grace of God that has appeared bringing salvation to all men. You might say, are we going there? You're absolutely right, we're going there. And what, when he says that he, grace has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, you've got to ask in what sense to all men, because you know, I'm looking eyeball to eyeball at many of you, and we don't have a single universalist in this church that believes everyone's going to be saved. So that can't, mean, it can't be what this phrase means, universal salvation, so we have to ask, in what sense is it? Is there a sense in in which it is not to all men? It's used again in the third chapter, if you wanted to flip the page, if it's in the next page on your Bibles, in Titus 3 and verse 4, notice, when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared... And then he goes on to explain, he saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we've done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. So he uses it again in the same way to refer to mankind, humanity in general, as a category, not every individual. Out of the mass of the humanity he came to, he saved us. Paul is underscoring in our thought process here that the message of the Savior has not been hidden. It has not been withheld. We know that all men is not uh, uh, speaking of double predestination. God does not elect people to hell like He elects people to salvation. 
But the Savior has not been withheld from anyone on the basis of age, class, agenda. Remember those groups that we've been studying the last few weeks? What did the churches on Crete look like? The societal structure. We've got the old and the young. And somebody took me to task, I don't know if it was yesterday or the day before, saying, Parker, we've got to readjust your age category here because I want to be in the other. But, uh, yeah, but we see that all through Scripture. There's, there's a, diff- uh, a variety uh, uh, of history and class and agenda. Isn't this what the church of the redeemed consists of? All this diversity? So this is what comes up in the whole discussion regarded uh, what has been referred to as limited atonement or particular redemption. This is one of those verses we must wrestle with that doctrine. The grace of God has appeared bringing salvation to all men. What does it mean? It means that there was a very real atonement that occurred. It's not hypothetical. It was not just a potential salvation, but a very real salvation that is totally and fully activated, saved to the uttermost those that He purchased and paid sin's price. Scriptures do not suggest that he died for others that, he didn't, that, that didn't come to him. People that aren't assured that he'd bring all the way to salvation. One of those similar ways in which the, Paul will use this in the pastoral epistles, if you wanted to flip back a couple of pages in 1 Timothy chapter uh, 4 and verse number 10, notice with me, what he instructs us on. First Timothy 4.10 This is why we labor and strive because we fixed our hope on the living God and he defines this living God as the one who is the Savior of all men. Is this literally? How do we exegete this? All men? Comma, especially of believers. So there's a way that He's a Savior of everyone and not everyone. How does, how do, how does Scriptures mean this? There is universal salvation opportunity. That is the way Paul will use it here in 1 Timothy 4 as well as in Titus 2. He's the Savior of all men, especially believers, in the sense, think with me for a moment, of delaying their deserved judgment for sin and granting countless temporal blessings that they don't deserve. God created man in the garden, Adam and Eve. He gave them restrictions. He said, you shall not eat From the forbidden tree, for in the day that you eat it, you will what? What's he say? You'll surely die. They ate it, and they didn't surely die. What is this? They did die, but they didn't die. God would have been just immediately wiping them out. Spiritually, they died immediately. There was a sever of the relationship. He could have burned them to a crisp and chose not to. 
So we've, we cannot settle for a surface reading of Scripture. We must dig into it to see what the author means by what he says. R.L. Dabney, in a book that he had written, let me quote him for a second, just a couple of sentences. Quote, Christ's sacrifice has certainly purchased for the whole human race a merciful postponement of the doom incurred by our sins, including all the temporal blessings of our earthly life, all the gospel restraints upon human depravity, and the sincere offer of heaven to all. For but for Christ, man's doom would have followed instantly after his sin as that that the fallen angels did, unquote. God would have been just to smoke out Adam and Eve. God would have been just to do a flood again if He hadn't obligated Himself to do the Noahic promise to never do so again. And so, part of what we see going on in our, particularly our nation, is part of the spillover blessing of just uh, some, some moral Christian values. And when God had exalted true believers to offices, it was a little easier to believe what we believe as taught in the Bible. These are, this is just common grace that all of mankind, believer or unbeliever, has experienced and drinks deeply of that grace. This is the same manner in which you take a Christian spouse, husband or wife, in a home. Scripture tells us that they bring a sanctifying effect to that home. Isn't that glorious? You know, in our logic, we want to think through, all right, my unbelieving spouse is going to undo every gospel influence. That's not what Scriptures teach. God is going to use that, just like He used Timothy's mom and grandmother and their gospel influence in his life. So yes, God has provided the means of salvation to all who would be saved. The gospel is good news to all men, not just believers, because unbelievers get some of the benefit of it, much of the benefit, not just the elect. Because He did promise, anyone who enters through Me, he shall be saved, John 10, 9. Some have tried capturing this hard doctrinal reality in the statement that the atonement is sufficient for the whole world, but only efficient for those who believe. There is not a limit on the atonement in a way that many people tend to think of that limit. The problem isn't in its sufficiency or its scope. Because in its scope of Christ dying for those He would redeem, He brought them all the way to salvation and He keeps them all the way to their glorification, not one of them being lost. Scottish Puritan John Brown helpfully writes, quote, there can be no doubt in the mind of a person who understands the doctrine of personal election that those who are actually saved are the objects of a special love on the part of God. And that the, little, and that the Savior had a special design in reference to them. But there can be little doubt that the atonement of Christ has a general reference 
to mankind at large, and that it was intended as a display of love on the part of God to our guilty race. God wasn't obligated, but He did so. Not merely was the atonement offered by Christ Jesus sufficient for the salvation of the whole world, but it was intended and fitted to remove out of the way of salvation of sinners generally every bar which the perfections of the divine moral character and the principles of divine moral government presented. In consequence of that atonement, Every sinner may be, and if he believe in Jesus, certainly shall be pardoned and saved. Unquote. So he does save to the uttermost. Out of all of humanity, only those who believe will be saved. And this is such a great reminder. Why, does, uh, why do churches love rehearsing truths that they have learned so many times before. We've, we've studied the doctrines of grace in adult Sunday school and in the text when they come up like such as this morning. Why do we love the doctrines of grace? Because nothing so bolsters our gratitude, nothing so increases our hatred for sin, or so infuses love and worship of God like our understanding of the doctrines of grace. When we truly understand that we are total de- totally depraved, We understand unconditional election, limited atonement, and irresistible grace, and that God will persevere the saints all the way through to the end. That's glorious reality. Nothing so decimates us in helplessness when we admit in humility that I cannot merit God's love. Not of works, lest any man should boast. So nothing so, so decimates us in helplessness and hopelessness unless God intervenes. So Paul says to Titus, remember Titus, and rehearse with God's people this truth that all of grace has appeared. There's such an, uh, this is so vital. Before he launches into his theology of works, we must understand grace, that it's appeared. In Greek literature, this word appeared can function as a technical term to describe a hero or a god breaking into the scene in some helpless situation to rescue somebody from danger. Ancients would have heard these words, this word appeared, and understood a god who came to rescue a person, a group, or a city from personal crisis. This is where, if you, if you uh, watch movies or you read novels, where the uh, musical uh, tone in the background starts to build, da-da-da, getting ready for the hero to break on the scene. That's what is going on here when Paul says that the grace of God's appeared. The musical score building for a dramatical entry, bursting onto the scene. Grace has appeared. It's epiphanied. Same word in 2 Timothy 1.10 when Paul wrote of the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus. So, and here's what he weaves through these verses that we, that we must recognize. When God or, or one of the apostles talks about grace, you can't talk about grace too much before you talk about the person of grace, the gracious one, the Lord Jesus Christ. When we say grace has appeared, we're saying Christ has appeared. A word connecting us to Jesus' incarnation, His unveiling, 
two other New Testament uses in, in the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts in reference to the rising or the appearing of sun, the, the literal sun, low S, uh, lowercase s. So the grace of God came forth from concealment, became visible, breaking on the moral darkness like rising sun. And in, the image that came in my mind instantly was as I'm going down some, some of the, when you're going from test to test at, at, at Yale, you pass this area, and I think it's, it's between Derby and Orange, where you are driving right into the sun in the morning as it's coming up. It's a very dangerous area, and that's exactly what this this uh, text is trying to portray blazing glory that you cannot ignore. So throughout this passage, as he weaves to speak of grace, is to speak of the gracious one Christ. They're inseparable, they're intertwined in our consideration. Grace, in other words, is no abstract concept, but a person. Grace is the personal act of a personal God who saves us from the helpless condition out of pure love, meriting nothing by us. After long being hidden in the loving counsels of God, He stepped into time and space. The grace of God now would embody Jesus, the brightness of the Father's glory. So number one, grace appeared to us. The grace of God saves us. Get that reality scalded across your eyes before we move on. Number two, grace teaches us. Verse 12, grace teaches us. Teaches us that He requires our separation from sin unto holiness. This is such a necessary teaching, especially with the scores of uh, light off-base treatments of grace in our day. That grace doesn't just save us from the penalty of sin, but also the power. It's a transforming grace. We could say it that way. And it even teaches us as believers, if, if you've come to faith in Christ, that there's never a time that we attain a plateau or cease learning from grace. We're always going to school as we preach the gospel to ourselves, day in, day out, learning more and unfolding the glory of God's grace. So salvation is transformational. Yes, Jesus saves us just as I am, as we sing in the hymn. Where we're at as the despised and the destitute and the rebels against God, but it doesn't leave us there. That's the issue. Seeds of gospel growth, our spiritual DNA has been planted in our soul. We're new creatures, as Paul would write to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 5.17. Over in uh, Ephesians, as Paul is rehearsing these similar gospel truths, maybe you've memorized Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 where he said, by grace you've been saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not as a result of work, so that no one may boast, for we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. If our discussions to people about grace do not get to how grace is demonstrated and displayed in the life of a believer. We have not schooled them on grace. 
We have not been taught grace. So Paul writes to his co-worker in gospel ministry about instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in this present age. It's what it instructs us on. So necessary. It produces new life in which there is uh, the power of sin has been broken. You know, at salvation, we overflow with, with uh, wonder and thanksgiving and gratitude. But there's another thing that we overflow in, and that is determination. Determination. When we recognize that we've been rescued from the clutches of evil, it's not a freedom to conduct life as we see fit as free men, but in those that have been freed from our sin and empowered unto righteousness or enslaved to it. As we've been rescued from the clutches of evil, we recognize the danger we were in. Grace says no. Grace denies. Grace disciplines. So it teaches us. There's both a a negative and positive connotation that uh, the apostle unfolds for us here. Here's what it schools us on, negatively and positively, to deny ungodliness and worldly desires. Let's just think about that for a moment. That's any misconduct, not just external, but even the internal impulses. We've, we've uh, made reference to that before, even uh, including our anger, our hatred, ambition, or any other urges that result in uncontrolled speech, behavior, desires. That noun desires, when he says worldly desires, epithumias is used frequently by the apostle and usually to describe strong impulses, strong urges, or lusts that arise within an ungoverned sinful nature. We all were there. In our next chapter of Titus, in Titus 3.3, he's going to remind them and remind us that we all once lived under their control. Our impulses, our worldly desires. Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.22, he was to flee them. Often there is a sexual connotation, but it's not just uh, relegated to a sexual connotation. It, it extends to include covetousness in 1 Timothy 6.9. And even misguided religious impulses, 2 Timothy 4.3. When Paul says to Timothy in a similar way, preach the word, be instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering doctrine. Why does he do that? Because there's a time coming when they will accumulate teachers according to their, what? Own desires, there's our term. Our own desire, their own desires, accumulating teachers in accordance with their own lusts. So such lusts as Paul describes them in these pastoral epistles is harmful, it's youthful, they're various, and they're one's own. And here he describes them as worldly, worldly desires or worldly lusts. They arise from and are fed by this fallen creation rather than being from God or for God or by God. 
In Titus's context, they will include things like the Cretans were so well known for. Remember back in chapter 1 and verse number 12, one of themselves, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. Included there. What does life of godliness look like? It looks like saying no to ungodliness and worldly desires. Any desire characteristic of this evil world or age. So the first lesson comes negatively. But grace doesn't just tell us what to avoid. Grace also tells us to live sensibly, righteously, and godly. Even unlearning sinful thought patterns. When he talks about uh, being sensible, that term sophronos was used back in the earlier parts of the chapter in verse number 12 and verses 4 through 6 to characterize those who profess allegiance to Christ. Positive instruction urges believers to live with a sound-minded manner. It describes a mind set in proper balance having gained mastery through salvation which frees us from the shackles of our sin. Um, we're, as a, many of us are reading Dr. Whitney's spiritual disciplines of the Christian life. That's what it looks like. Those are the tools of the trade of what a life that is sensible and devoted to righteousness and godliness looks like and partakes of. Soberly, with self-restraint. And here's the effect. Now, to connect this point to the previous one of uh, grace not being an abstract concept, but a person, Christ. When Isaiah got a picture of God, what was his response or the effect in his life? When he saw the holiness of God, he fell down crying, woe is me, I'm ruined. Moses, when the grace of God appeared to him at the burning bush, he hid his face. Paul expected the same effect of seeing God so clearly in grace through Christ to affect us no differently than those in the biblical history log. When we see God clearly, we've got an intense awareness of our unholiness in contrast to His holiness. And we want to be rid of what stained us before the radiance of His grace. So we need to be schooled by grace on the holiness of God. And that school we never graduate from. It instructs us to deny ungodliness, worldly desires, and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in this present age. Number three. What else does grace do? Grace encourages us. Or maybe you'd use the word it upholds us, verse 13. This is the eschatological hope. God rewards us with Himself. Isn't that a grand reality? Connecting verses 3 and 14. Looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. So this... Uh, you know, grace appeared, we were told back in verse 11. Grace appeared. And in the in-between time, 
We're waiting for this same grace in the form of Jesus to appear one more time in the second coming. The second, the second epiphany. Here's the vital tool in sanctification today. In view of unmerited favor of the past, which promotes godly living, so does the future look at this same grace. He that has this hope purifies himself even as he is pure. We wait for that coming and we don't want him to appear. We're in the midst of serving our sin and ourselves. So we are looking for that blessed hope and appearing of his glory. Now stop and ponder that for just a moment. The appearing of our God and Savior, Christ Jesus. Let me give you a quick little Greek lesson. Some of you have been uh, trying to learn a little bit of Greek from, uh, from Dr. Black and whatnot. There's an interesting tool here you can use for your evangelism, Greek Meister or not. When he talks about our great God and Savior, he's speaking to the same person, the Son. One great Greek scholar, A.T. Robertson, notes that way back in 1798, Granville Sharp laid down a rule which has not since been successfully discredited. You take two nouns preceded by a definite article like the, which we've got here, which we don't see in our English. In the Greek, there is the, God and Savior. You take two nouns preceded by a definite article. If there's no definite article after the second noun, speaking to the same thing. It's a further description. We talk about uh, in Ephesians 4, somebody being a pastor-teacher. Teacher more developing and explaining what a pastor is. That, now, there's debate as to whether or not that is the true Granville Sharp rule. We find in Hebrews 3.1 about the apostle and high priest of our confession. There's where it's taken place again. Or when John writes about his revelation in Revelation 1.9, he writes as your brother and companion. Companion for the describing your brother. You say, well, Pastor Parker, there's a reason why some of us aren't learning Greek. Why? What about the rest of us? Because he speaks here of one of the greatest verses on the deity of Jesus Christ we find in our evangelism as we seek to deal with cults biblically Speaking of one person, not two. This is one of the New Testament's clearest expressions when he addresses our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. Not separating the Father from the Son, but just addressing the Son and His appearing. He needs to be the center of our reality, the center of our focus. And we've tried drawing that point through this this uh, section of Scripture. Let me try to uh, illustrate this by uh, uh, Copernicus's solution. Um, one of our kids was asking as they were learning about Copernicus, who is this? You think about science and theology, which are constantly trying to adjust each other. A discovery in one field of 
study offering, eliciting from the other a readjustment or a denunciation. Many times people try to take uh, uh, geology and undo the creation account of Genesis or, or vice versa. Since the time of the philosopher-scientist, particularly Aristotle and Ptolemy, Western civilization has held to an uh, anthropocentric view of life, and that's a fancy word, just talking about man as the center and focus, the be-all and end-all of life. Man's at the center of the universe, and this outlook interprets all of life in terms of human values, benefits, and experience. The human race becomes the driving force and central force behind the vast universe. At first glance, this might seem logical, it might seem reasonable. You know, some Christians say, well, why, are we, uh, why do we invest in uh, uh, going into outer space? Uh, why the center of it all? Man, after all, is the center figure in God's redemptive work. God talks to man. God visited him, became like him in Jesus. The Scriptures interpret history from God's perspective as He pursued the human race with His grace. With this understanding, scientists and theologians concluded man is the center of creation. The earth is the center of the universe. And that all the planets rotated around them. That's only logical until it's proved illogical. In the 16th century, Nicholas Copernicus's claim that the earth rotates around the sun rather than vice versa shook the foundations of science and Scripture, supposedly. Times proved Copernicus is, uh, to be right in his theory. Science has built up its discovery, allowing us to explore science and detect new components of our universe. But mankind resists being placed in the periphery. Our history confirms a stubborn refusal to allow anything to displace our self-importance, even God. When, when they try to uh, locate man on the edges of the planetary system, made him feel tossed aside and diminished in importance. This caused growing suspicion of science among theologians. That ought not to be so. Just as the earth rotates around the sun, so God is the center of everything He's created. He is the fixed center around which everything revolves. Yes, man is the center of God's redemptive plan. Man may be the centerpiece of His redemptive works, but His purpose is to proclaim his goodness. What does Peter say that uh, we are to uh, show forth His excellencies? Make much of Him as the center. Christians are called to live in the reality of God's truth. This places upon us the responsibility to live in a, the manner of Jesus Christ. In the previous language of last week, of what it means to be adorning the gospel, when people look at us, do they see Christ? Do they see the God that has transformed us through His grace? This unchanging God must stand as the immovable center of the Christian life if we're to live in a godly manner. So it's not just a matter of the commands, the imperatives. We must get to the theological 
basis and foundation of Christ Himself. God is our enabling power. He is the master of our spirit, the light that casts upon us a measure of His glory. That's what we look forward to. When we can set aside all of our inconsistencies and all the, the bad pictures we give of Christ, and we mirror Him perfectly in eternity. We're looking forward to Jesus coming in this blessed hope and this appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus. Grace encourages and upholds us. Are you eager in anticipation, holiness, and faithful service awaiting Him? This appearing glory, the doxa, the glory of God. That He is all and in all. The sp- not just even the person, but all the splendor surrounding of what this signifies. The glorious appearing of God. So grace saves. Grace instructs. Grace encourages us. How about this final thought? In verse 14, grace empowers us. Grace empowers us. We're freed from sin and enslaved to righteousness. You might uh, dub this point, this is the behavior of belief. Faith does work. We do believe in the Lordship of Jesus Christ over the salvation that He brings into our lives. This is the Ephesians 2.10 that ends the Ephesians 2.8 passage. We're not saved by works, but unto works. So notice that whole point, as, he, as he's going down through grace, we must get to this end point, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed, to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. He saved us to sanctify us, to redeem us from every lawless deed, to purify a people who are zealous of good deeds. A holy people was His purpose in paying such a fearful price. So it's not enough to tell people God loves you and has a great plan for your life. God loves you because He loves Himself with perfect love to create a people. As we we acknowledge that we're bought with a price, we'll pay any price to bring life in conformity with our beloved Lord. The prospect of being with the One who's granted us such honor certainly compels us to be zealots of good works. You you look at that term. You listen to that through first century ears. These people on Crete that were for the first time, who was the last group He just addressed with all the imperatives? Slaves. This had special significance for them. Redemption. Redeem, very important term regarding the fifth group that Paul addressed. God saved not just the uttermost of society, but the, what would be the guttermost, everywhere in between, from the older to the younger, to the slaves, to the masters, He redeemed them. All classes of men, even slaves, are enabled to live truly redeemed lives. And since we're freed from sin and enslaved to Christ, notice this, uh, uh, this twofold concern for holiness and uh, that, it, that it be zealous. This, this would be a, a people 
for his own possession. Zealous for good deeds. God saved you not for you, but for him. Could be one way of saying it. This is the innate problem with the man-centered gospel of God loves you and has a great plan for your life. Is that wrong? No. It's just not enough. It's not enough to tell somebody that. It's anemic. Or like the modern chorus that uh, we don't often sing because of its last line, that he thought of me above all, really? No. This phrase, people for his own possession, is, is rich in the Greek Septuagint of the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy and Exodus, and especially Ezra 37. Speaking of a people that God will cleanse, having delivered them from their transgressions. And Paul very, very possibly could have been uh, richly influenced here by the language of promise of the Messianic age, which carries out all the covenantal promises of Deuteronomy. A people for his name, zealous for good deeds. Are you a zealot for good deeds? As Titus would become a zealot for good deeds, he was teach it. Speak it. Exhort it. Reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Three verbs indicating the need for proclamation, application, and even correction by the Word. Since Titus was to proclaim God's truth, he was to do it with God's authority. Just by saying, thus saith the Lord, is enough. It seals the deal. That brings His authority. Preachers of the gospel have no inherent authority, only the message they bring. Authority is inherent in the message because it's from God. Titus, don't let anyone disregard the message by disregarding you. The, uh, the, the idea in the, in the language here is uh, thinking around you. Don't let them think around you. So this passage... Especially verses one through uh, verses eleven through fourteen gives us strength for godliness, the power of the risen Christ enabling us to obey, living a worthy life of our uh, a life worthy of our calling. Yeah, there are a lot of instructions that have been, and some instructions that remain in chapter three. We'll look at more next week, but it's God's grace, past, present, and future salvation, that, it, that strengthens, that motivates us to live in, in this society in a countercultural way. He saves, He instructs, He enables people like us to be zealots of good deeds. Maybe the contrary is true of you. He, he said, remember the negative back in verse 12, instructing us to deny ungodliness? What if there's no denial in your life? taking up your cross and following Him. Ungodly living is a pretty clear sign that you, don't, you either don't understand or you don't believe. If you don't understand, you can seek some discipleship and in, in teachability to learn these precious doctrinal truths. But if the latter is true of you of the unbelief, check your birth certificate if you profess Christ. Ask God to convict you and convince you and bring you all the way to biblical repentance and stop claiming Christ because you do too much damage. It taints your witness. It doesn't adorn the gospel. It hurts those who haven't gotten over your seeming hypocrisy because they don't know the spiritual reality of your life. It's a barrier to them in coming to Christ. 
So as we think about all that Paul commends and exhorts and commands us, let's think of the richness of this grace that has enabled us to be zealous to good deeds. Would you pray with me? Father, so much more needs to be said. So much of what has uh, been said has been said through a, a weak, very weak teacher. And so we ask Your Spirit to give life and clarity to the words of Scripture that we have studied this morning. Might Your Spirit bring His bony finger of conviction into our lives to convict us of any inconsistencies in a life of godliness and exhort us with the hope in grace. You have never commanded us to be what You have not empowered us to do. This is all to the praise of Your great name that we praise You and ask for You to continue this work of transforming grace in our lives this grace that is greater than our sin, the more that man has manifested his depravity, how much greater this grace becomes. It is of you and for you and to you. We adore you in the matchless name of Jesus, the Great One. Amen.